0: I mean, He's been putting in work for so long. Putting in a lot of work. What's going on, guys? Welcome back to Putting in Work, episode 96 of the interview podcast on the 8-Bit Collective, powered by Audio Technica. I'm your host, John O'Peck. And this week, we've got Alex Walker, Kotaku Australia's editor, on the show. Had a chance to catch up with Alex at Pax Australia. Quite some time ago now, but this is the last of my PAX interviews. Go back and check out previous five episodes if you want to hear the rest of those. But it was great to talk to Alex just to learn about the way that Kotaku Australia works, the way that they utilize content that comes from the US, but still managed to have a very Australian focus and original content. And with the games industry here so different than it is, where a lot of the major outlets are, like in LA and San Francisco, the way that they produce content is very different as well. It means that they're looking for angles that aren't covered. It means that they're finding an Australian perspective and news that matters to Australian readers. Which isn't easy to do when the games themselves are mostly made overseas. But I think Kotaku does a really good job of finding interesting angles on those stories that are universal. And they have a very distinct identity compared to the American Kotaku website. And Alex is a big part of that. He's the editor. He's quite a prolific writer as well as curating the social media content and everything else that happens at that site. So to get his perspective and how he ended up there in an industry where there's not a whole lot of jobs in journalism, in video games, where they intersect in Australia... And seeing that he actually made his way there through the path of covering esports, even before they were called esports, and just freelancing and making a name for himself as someone who could be relied upon, as someone who you could count on to produce the content that you're after as a freelancer. So here he is, without further ado, it's Alex Walker. Enjoy the show. Alex, thank you for joining me. It's great to meet you here and see your packs. How's things?
1: Yeah, not too bad. Uh, it's been like a pretty a good three days. It hasn't been as busy for me this time around as previous years. I've done every pack so yeah. far and other packs have uh, tried to jam everything in, like, you know, appointments back to back, go and try and see like every single thing on the show yeah. floor. This has been the, it, it came together a bit later for me in the week, uh, so... It hasn't been as packed, and that's nice. I've had a little more time to sort of leisure around a bit, which is kind of good because I always feel like you miss, like if you if you try and fit everything in, you miss something. Yeah. So I don't feel like I've had that this much that's this time around.
0: It's good. Is it you've, when you say you've had less work to do? I guess you've just given yourself less work to do.
1: Yeah. Well, sense? I mean, that's it. Like you, packs is one of those things. It's not like a, an E3 or a Gamescom where like you generally try and squeeze like you're you're squeezing things in. But then you're also planning the okay, IK need to have like half an hour or so to walk from hall to hall mm. because it's such a big production. Yeah. PAX is more a, an event about the five. Yeah. Right. So there's a lot of like for instance, PAX in Indie section. There's a yep. ton of things that, you know, have been there for a few years. You know, so you, you kind of you can go back and check and have a chat to them and see how they're going. But you know, you don't need to go and hassle yourself that much. It's good to spend more time in the tabletop section. Sure. You know, Which is good, especially since they've just had the spill DRs, which is, you know, I guess the best description I can say is the book of prize for board games. And so a lot of people are having fun, you know, playing the biggest things there and mm. getting experience with that. Yeah.
0: Okay. And do you find that. Uh the coverage is tailored toward people who aren't able to come or is it for people who are here? Like, who, who are you trying to create content for when you're at an event like this? Yeah, I,
1: I think for people who were not here or for people who are only able to come one day or they're just generally interested in our perspective on things, especially because we've had, you know, part of our side of the media is dealing with a lot of things that are in pre-production, things that are, are not quite ready. Mm-hmm. And so, like, having that perspective on how far along something is and what looks what looks interesting versus what's an interesting idea in something but obviously needs, like, a few more asset passes. Uh, that that kind of helps a lot. But also there's a lot of stories that you can get and just by talking to the developers and getting human stories. We've done a lot of that in the past Of one of uh, Mark Serrell's great stories they wrote years ago was about hacknet and expand and how the two developers they're, and they're both good friends had were helping out on each other's booths and they were both great games and people loved them both but one of them became super successful and the other one didn't at all and so that's another way to sort of think about pax is like what can you dig through and what are the stories that you can find and, yeah. and it,
0: uncover it's interesting isn't it like every dev Indie dev especially has a kind of a crazy story behind the game that they're making, whether it's the, where the idea came from or the production side of it and that kind of thing. So I think that if you dig around and find those, it's something that people find really interesting.
1: Well, I, I think as well, like the development is a story of sacrifice. Mm. Like you look at something like Stardew Valley, which is like sort of eight, eight years of um, Eric Burn's life, mm. you know, much of it in solitude, much of it away from his partner is just watching him slowly go insane over that time as especially those smaller projects tend to be. Mm. Like there is a very human element there that people can connect with if you can sort of want, if you can prize it out and also like people are open to revealing it. Mm. A lot of the times they're not, which is reasonable and sometimes you know it hasn't been as bad for one team as it has for another but I didn't know it's incumbent on you where you can to go and find that Yeah,
0: it's interesting like I find the movie like the indie game documentary that a lot of people have seen about Fez and um, Super Meat Boy, like those games, are both really successful. But, but the struggles and the stories that they're t- telling in that movie seem to be really common amongst indie developers. That whole cycle of you know putting everything into this thing and you know taking putting years of your life into a project and not knowing how it's going to go, and then when it's finally out there, seeing the reception and that kind of thing. So it's a, a lot of uh, human interest involved because it is really a, a great example of something that is created, like something massive, because games penetrate so far across the world and can reach so far but it's all coming down to a select few people and the work that they've put in over such a long period of time
1: and that's there's similarities with art too and just like general content creation Mm. is that you put something out there you publish something i publish something you don't know how that's going to be received you don't know if your your phone's going to go batshit with mentions because there's been a mistake in there or if there's something that you've not seen or you've missed a perspective or if the worst case scenario nobody gives a shit and you'd mm. be like, well, what did I spend my time doing that for? You know, dev is very much like that, but it's much greater financial risk because it's all the eggs in this one basket mm. kind of thing. You know, there are you know, devs... The at the end, yeah. Yeah, and, and some people have side jobs and something to keep themselves going, but also that's risky too because that's time spent away from development. So what happens when you lose the momentum on a project? You know, what happens if it comes out and, you know, five other games have done the same idea because you took like seven or eight years to make it it's not for the faint-hearted yeah
0: but on that it's like you look at these some of these indie games and they're so creative and bizarre it's hard to imagine anyone coming up with the same one like talking simulator or like lethal lawns yeah where did these ideas come from
1: yeah it's just sort of like they're being almost cooped up and like what kind of crazy thing Hmm. developed in this small period of isolation oh that's actually really fun you Hmm. sit there go what were you doing when you came up with that? <laughs> were you, are you okay? Yeah,
0: <laughs> great. So uh, as the editor of Kotaku Australia, what are your main responsibilities and duties with
1: that? Uh, so my main responsibilities day-to-day are making sure that there is content on the site. I also look after um, the social for Kotaku as well these days. So looking, making sure that things are up, things are scheduled, things are, are, are localized, and I work with uh, a sub-editor Amanda, Amanda is just about to leave us, but we're working with a, a freelancer at the moment to, to fill that column. Uh And so I often liken it to shifting puzzle pieces around because you've got, you know, you have the course of 24 hours over a day. You've got a whole bunch of different articles. Some articles were obviously major features that should go on large slots. Other ones are kind of like either about, you know, older games or things that might not be as popular. So you, a lot of the days, okay, put this here and put this here time that and then also uh filling the gaps that are left with my own writing so i, I tend to i've always been quite prolific in terms of the amount of content that i produce i think i, I have over 5200 articles um now so it's about like you know over the course of three years so it's been august august 2015 since i started and i took a like month break off not long after that but it's been about like sort of 8 to 10 average Mm. per day it's crazy so (laughs) yeah and that's pretty much what it is so like you know I'll I'll go through my schedule so to give people a sense the day will start at 11pm the previous day and what will happen is essentially because we're a breaking news site so we don't have a lot of um, we use a lot of the content we get Mm. Um, and so I'll schedule out the early hours of the morning to make sure that's ready for people Mm. and then go to sleep wake up about 7 seven thirty, and then i'll spend maybe between 90 minutes well usually an hour to two hours filling out what we call refeed which is our, our content that we get from the u.s and then either adding if there's something that's breaking that i need to add as well i'll write my own stories and add them in there sometimes i'll get you know between like you know one and four out before i leave the house and then i'll go into the office somewhere between 9 and 10 and i'll usually be there between 5 or 6 p.m and then go home and maybe might be working on like another long feature especially if it's something like over like a thousand words or like if it's related to so i'm doing like a a lot of testing for the nvidia's new rtx graphics cards um that's not something i can do in the office so i'm doing Mm. that at home usually while watching Naruto or something or writing something else so that's generally like and it does tend to change but that's the rough outline of what the day is like Mm. and what encompasses you know my responsibilities there. sounds exhausting <laughs> yeah it, look it, look, it's pretty long but i mean i don't think like anybody getting into this industry had any illusions that it was going to be any other way it's not what it's not and it comes up a lot is it's not a job about playing games all day it's very very little of what i do is related to that mm. um and you know you'll get that from like most people like you know i think like most major outlets a lot of a lot of the day is around writing or around meetings or scheduling or planning. It's not games, uh, playing games is not, that's more, and even, you know, streamers and people working on YouTube will tell you the same thing as well. Like, a lot of the time, the the games are the content, but a lot of the work is actually the editing, the scheduling, the planning, the tech support, you know, yeah. all that element
0: of it. They're running a small business too, so there's all the all yeah. that stuff that goes with it.
1: dealing with the fucking ATO, yeah. <laughs>
0: you know,
1: like managing all of that, so...
0: So when you're putting a content schedule together or whatever it is, how, how much, if you got like a ratio in mind where you want to have this much Australian content versus stuff that's coming from the great work that's being done by Kotaku overseas?
1: Uh, no, so I don't tend to go with a, a schedule or anything that fixated because one, we tend, we're very much a, a breaking news site versus mm-hmm. say more like a, I guess tech tends to be like a good example. So something you know, where they're focusing primarily on the reviews of products. We're not focused that, like, we obviously do cover all the major the games, but that's not the the most of our content. It's more the discussion of what's happening around them. What's coming out? Has something been delayed? Has something happened to this studio? You know, was, you know and then you add the other small elements that are in, in around that. So obviously things like, you know, deals, bargains, that's content that goes up on the site. Um, Sometimes there's also like content that we share from our our other sites that are relevant to our audience. So for Kotaku Australia, there's a, a, a huge portion of PC fans. So a lot of the hardware coverage that Gizmodo tends to do sometimes or sometimes coverage that Lifehacker will do, like particularly if it's um, comparisons. has sometimes done some um, really good comparisons of retro hardware. There's been a lot of that recently. So sharing that, collaborating on that, working with that, that, that tends to... We work on what's available from that whole broad spectrum and then we fill out the day and then work out, okay, all right, so we've got this schedule is covered for today what can we start working on for the mm. next day and then keep going from there
0: sure and like for me as someone who's done a small amount of freelancing i realized that all these different large video game sites do have their own kind of identity and their like character in a sense of the types of articles that they'll be looking for or that they'll be publishing uh, or writing themselves so what is it do you think that uh, Kotaku would, or you as the editor of Kotaku, would be looking to differentiate yourself from the IGNs and GameSpots and the, I guess, competitors, for lack of a better term?
1: Kotaku typically tends to write the stories that you won't see in other places, and I don't
0: say that as
1: an indictment of anybody else's audience or any other outlet. But, I mean, that's the reality of it. Like, I wrote a, a long story last year about, the discussion that was going on in the game dev scene about alcoholism and the way that a lot of the networking and a lot of the industry meetups was being tied to the need to have a drink. Mm. That's not a story that you will often find, especially on sites that are not Australian-facing. No, that's the wrong word. Not Australia, Not Australian-focused. Mm. Like, the Australian arm of a global organisation would want the global view. They would want a much bigger picture of that whereas kotaku australia focuses on australians very much like sort of pc power play or would do or a lot of how more sites used to be i personally believe that australians want things that are relevant to them um and but also the strength of kotaku's brand means that we can go and cover a lot more of the discussion around that culturally the people Give a lot of praise for a lot of the deep investigations, but that also includes you know things that are happening to studios shutting down locally. A lot of coverage of you know classification borders and easy one. You know in terms of like you know what's why why is this still happening? You know what's happening to these games? What's happening to uh, loot box legislation? Esports is being treated in Australia from a regulation standpoint. You know those those sorts of, of stories are things that we look to cover. The more human sort of stories. Um, Sometimes we've had people write in and talk about how games have helped them when they were homeless or how games have helped them get through depression. Stuff like that is a bit more offbeat and the sort of thing that we love
0: to cover. I can definitely see that in a lot of the articles that have come out, especially with the way that, uh, I guess, the industry, people are so much more interested in what's happening inside the industry as well as just what games are coming out of it
1: yeah and i mean like that it's also not that wholly different from how sort of newspapers and media cover things generally Mm. like but if that would traditionally be only relegated to say maybe like politics or like particular sectors of sport like people just don't see games in the same lens Mm. sometimes which is unfortunate because you're losing out by not looking at that conversation deeper. And every like everybody that I speak to and everybody that works locally tries to do that as much as possible. It's really the reason why people can't do it more is a factor of time mm. more than anything else. Especially in Australia when, you know, everybody is, you know nobody has like, you know, a hundred people working on a site or yeah. working for a convention like that. That just doesn't happen kind of yeah. thing. So we all do what we can with what we've got. But that's, you know, sort of the general direction mm. that we have from what Kotaku is as a brand. You know, it lets us do um, little things like essentially why is Hasbro making a game about stepping in Play-Doh shit? Or fuck kids because they break all the things you love and on your games. Like little stuff like mm. that. You know, I think those are things that people experience in their lives too. Yeah. And I don't think that we should be above sharing those stories. Mm. I, I think it's good. It brings a smile to people's yeah. faces.
0: And, and climbing. There's a lot of climbing on Kentucky. Yeah, climbing, yeah. <laughs> Has the uh, climbing clicks gone down a lot since the, the so climbing
1: was. clicks have gone down a lot and i think clicks that um giving the middle finger to windows 10 breaking have sort of mm. have, have gone up in comparison but i mean like that's also like it, it's very um we're also tend to be personality driven as well because um you write what you know when you you write the experiences that you have um so i come from a much more uh, tech and esports background than what mark did Sure. Um, whereas and David Wildgoose before him was a much more traditional sort of PC and viewing background than Marx. so you know they the way they see the world is different uh, and that and that's good and, and people you know appreciate that identity that comes through that individual voice that's what you want from writers anyway yeah, right? To, for absolutely. them to have a strong voice okay
0: so you mentioned a bit of a tech and esports background and how did you get into what you're doing at the moment and did you always kind of grow up aiming towards being a journalist and in the games industry?
1: So here's a fun little story for you. When I was really young my first sort of exposure to any of this was I remember going on onto what what I'll call as a ship. My dad used to work as a a chief engineer for BHP Mm -hmm. and a Canadian shipping company for pretty much the majority of his life and back before 9-11 the companies used to let families come on the ships and stay there for a little while. And sometimes they'd often let let the wives of sailors because it was only men, obviously, because that was the time. Um, They'd let them stay on the ship as well. So we went down one school holiday and Dad's like, oh, yeah, we've got a surprise because around Christmas time. He wasn't going to be home for Christmas, so we saw him off then. And he had a copy of PC Gamer UK 1994 or ninety five. I think it might have been 1995. Yeah, I remember I had the virtual pool. Just the big, like, sort of eight ball on the front, and it had a CD ROM as well. We never had a CD ROM at the time. Like, we played plenty of games, but it was on a lot of older systems because our family didn't have a lot of money. And my dad worked as a programmer when he was off the ship, and a lot of banks used to throw out a lot of old computers so we had a lot of 286s and 386s that were just sitting around doing nothing but this was sort of like a cd and like people were covering all these sorts of games and there were huge spreads and that was really cool so my brother and i really got into it and i think like after you know maybe a year of sort of going through and reading the mags that we could get from the local news agent, for some reason i liked i think it was virtual fighter when it came to pc and i really fucking liked whatever uh i can't remember who wrote it but what they were saying about virtual fighter on the pc so i i read it out into a tape recorder that (laughs) my grandmother had and i just sort of like was just reading it and i forgot all about it got about it completely for almost 20 years and get back to it but what ended up happening from a writing perspective is a friend of mine used to run a lot of the um, leagues at sgl for Counter Strike, his brother used to run like the sort of invite division. He did the main division, and he was like, "Oh, you know, you should get into Counter Strike, play Counter Strike." And then I'm like, "Okay, so I'll in, you know, find out where like the local hub was, which was um, Pantheon Esports at the time, and the sort of founder and runner of that. He's moved on from esports. He now runs the sort of video division for BuzzFeed in New York, funnily enough. And when I got there, I realised everybody hated my friend because he was an asshole. Absolutely, fucking everybody hated his brother even more. So I'm like, "Oh shit, that's not really much of a a good introduction." So I started writing, and I started doing a lot of recaps of international work, things that were happening in overseas league, and that's people started to get to know me uh, through the Counter Strike scene that way. And I I did that for a long time. After about like five years of you know playing, having some little success of my own, doing my own leagues, I got the chance uh, to run the World Cyber Games the Sydney tournament and then the the national event because the company that owns Cybershack had the license to do WCG in Australia at the time. Mm. So we did that. And through that, I ended up uh, meeting Nick Ross and Seamus Byrne. Funnily enough, um, Seamus Byrne, uh, I think he'd taken a commission to follow team immunity who were going over to play Counter-Strike. They were representing Australia that year. And then we ended up doing some work later, preparing a um, magazine about esports. What, then it was called like professional gaming. Yeah, That didn't end up coming together, but later through that, I would end up becoming doing all the games coverage for Nick Ross when he was uh, uh, running ABC Technology and Games. And because of the competitive gaming experience, I went on and started working on a retainer for Tim Colwell, who was running Games on Net then. And I stayed with both of those sites uh, until they shut down. ABC was around like 2014, Games on Net was about late 2015. And because of the work that I'd done there, I ended up meeting a lot of the other people in the industry and doing just taking on more work and more work Mm. where I could. And eventually when a role opened up at Kotaku, I think Tim actually told Mark at the time, you're an idiot if you don't take Alex. (laughs) I'm not not 100% sure on that, but I think he gave me an incredibly strong reference. And I think especially Mark was looking for someone who could cover PC and esports. And there were so few people who were doing any esports coverage back then? There's, there's still there's nobody has covered it for as long as I have, and mm. the other two people that have as long background was Serene, who worked at Gamespot Australia and then moved to the US and is doing work over there, and Amelia, who is used to be around the StarCraft scene in Australia, but she went and worked for Riot Europe, and now she works at Blizzard locally, and that was literally it. We were talking like about like three, four people max. Um, So, you know, that was how I came into where I am now, effectively.
0: Yeah. And how long ago was that?
1: Uh, August 2015. I've been there for just over three years and I've been editor Mm -hmm. for over two.
0: So it sounds like it was a product of a lot of grinding away and working in different spaces and over a long period of time that got you noticed and and built that skill and got you in in with the right people, I suppose, from sounds of, like, a reference like that is what kind of got you... Probably, I imagine, a lot of journalists that are interested in video games would love to be.
1: Being reliable was what got me that reference, I think, and I think that's what any editor Mm. wants. Like, they want people who will make their lives easy in the sense that, you know, if you're going to pitch something, don't make it extra work. If you're going to put in copy, don't make it shit, make it clean. Mm-hmm. So it's not a lot of extra effort to get it up to standard. Sure. You know, don't put, like, you know, pictures within, you know, your Google Docs thing because they're going to have to take it out and re-upload it and make sure it fits their what their CMS requirements are. Sure. Stuff like that. And in, in Net's case, I would take on um, extra, like, I would fill in for extra work shifts if somebody wasn't doing that day or... I would just pitch in a lot of things because, you know, I wanted to help out and wanted to contribute to the site. And that meant Tim knew he could rely on me when things were required. Mm. And I think, like, for a lot of people, like, that is absolutely a grind. Like, no doubt about it. And it was absolutely a lot of work um, most of the time for no money at all. Like, I I told a story I was on the um, Game Reviews the review panel yesterday how i remember working 65 hours on a feature for the older scrolls online when i was running for abc i only got 50 bucks for that wow like the, you know the value <laughs> of that is you know it may as well basically been paid you know zero for the, the amount it was. but the, there is a value to having work up there mm. that transcends to some degree the amount that you get back for it now there's always sort of a balance where like yeah. you know people should not be working for free but also, I would not have any of the, the gigs that I did if I didn't do a ton of free work. Mm. Like, especially, you know, earlier on, before I was getting paid, like, all of the community writing that I was doing. People, you need that experience mm. as a writer. You need to find your voice. And, yeah.
0: I've heard a lot of artists talk about that as well, whether they're, like, they, they shoot video clips or they, you know, they are literally artists, like, painting or whatever it is. Like, at the start, they know that there's a amount of stuff that they will have to do for free. Until they're in a position where they can say, My time is worth this much.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and also like you need to you need to make mistakes. Mm. You need to try and push the edges of what your creative boundaries are, find what you're what you're comfortable with and then find what you're not comfortable with and then chase that and also try different things, you know different types of features, different types of structures, different Mm. types of playing with content. Give yourself the chance to do, you know, different types of video content do you know how to video edit if not like you know work together what that's like you know get some more skills with adobe like volunteer writing is a place where you can do a lot of that and it's handy to do a lot of that especially Mm. now nowadays where any journalists are expected way far more in terms of games and tech than traditional your news corps and your fairfaxes like we're expected to have some good skills with video we're expected to have good adobe sweet skills you know you need the whole
0: package yeah. and just hearing you talk about this it feels different from a lot of the stories you hear maybe in the us where i guess most of the games industry personalities and journalists are where it feels like uh people have like being the focus on personality and having a youtube channel having a podcast and streaming and all these kinds of things are what people think is going to get them into the industry but like is it different in Australia because there's so few positions or am I? is it maybe just the misconception that the uh, the writing and all of the, the grind underneath is, is, is different here?
1: I think it might have been the case a little bit longer, but the reality is there's not more positions opening up. I've not seen more people into the industry since I was a part of it. I've only seen more people leave the industry. So having, you know, a different vehicle... Uh, is, you know, typically tends to be a way into the industry. Often a lot of that, eSports has been like the the only thing where more people have come into it. I mean, uh, Gamers is um, an Australian company that does, they run like a lot of internationally focused sites. So you, you dot eSports uh, and things like that. But like, that's a thing where like, because they, they have that global scale and eSports is a very much a scale play. Uh, they're able to hire more people and bring in more fresher voices or have like at least an expanding freelancer roster mm. even if you're not having those people in full time oh. and that's that's a route for people you know essentially you know the the traditional path still and for a large time will always be i need someone to fill something or somebody's sick or whatever all right get like a, a freelancer in or somebody can help out i need more work Ah, oh, this person's been good before i'll trust with that i'll keep going with that and eventually if something opens up this person has been rock solid and mm that's who you end up taking. Okay, that's
0: cool. And what would you say has been, like, the hardest part of getting to the point you're at now?
1: There's definitely a mental drain that you come, like, up until the point... uh, I think about, like, maybe 2014, towards the end of that, I was sort of... I was not sure if I was going to keep doing it. And I hear the same from a lot of people. They just sort of look and go, well, am I going to be able to afford a house? Can Can I pay off my car? You know, this is, like, you're not walking into... Stability—you're walking into quicksand or shifting sands, at the very least, you know—and that—and that's a question as you get older. When you when you're starting out, in are sort of eighteen, nineteen, twenty, and you you're looking at your own YouTube channel, and make your own podcast, or you've got a blog going. You don't need to worry such a great deal about that far forward in the future. When you're coming up closer to thirty, you've you know the career progression, the career prospects are something that you can't fuck around with. You need to think about what the next twenty years of your life is like. Uh, I think in a large cases, I kept going just because out of a sheer stubbornness. And you know, I mentioned the sort of the the tape thing before. Mm. Like I'd I'd forgotten that this was something that I I wanted to do as a kid, and then just inadvertently kept doing it. <laughs> now that's not sound career advice for anyone. I'm not unhappy with what's happened, but you know you do have to be realistic.
0: Were well, there are times that along the way, and you know you were grinding through and not breaking in where you wanted to be at that particular point where you thought, maybe maybe i just go and work at, uh, you know, Sydney Morning Herald or one of these other Fairfax news limited things. Was that ever on your mind or was it always games? I want to work in games.
1: I think it was maybe more a prospect of leaving the industry altogether because sure. it's not like the narrative um, for writing gets any better when you go elsewhere. Right. right. You know, there's, you know, especially we've seen so much... Um, use Redundancy, of job cuts yeah. and redundancies and people being redeployed or workload being reshifted so it's a case of like is this like corporate contents um a place where a lot of the, the older folk have ventured into and you know marketing i don't think is is something that i would be particularly suited like i want to be able to have that that voice and that honest opinion so i just sort of almost blinkered just kept going at it and be like you know what yeah. i've put in an awful lot of work i've given up a hell of a lot of time and and done like a a lot like i've never really slowed down Yeah. um i've stayed like pretty prolific throughout so this is just something that i do and i'd like to think that i was fortunate enough and that people were kind enough to give me a shot and you know because that that's the other thing as well you know this is a, a world that doesn't forget mistakes so you know it's kind of you always have to be very grateful
0: sure and you've touched on a lot of good things, I think, but what would be your main advice to people who want to work in the industry the way you are?
1: I think you have to really take a moment to stop and identify what it is precisely about the process that you enjoy. I think it's not enough to say, I want to work in games or I want to write about games or I want to create videos or stream games because then you will realise very quickly that you're spending 8, 10, 12-hour days doing things around games that don't actually that are not actually about games whatsoever. You know, it might be fucking about in Premiere, it might be dealing, you know, with some sort of tech, it might be dealing with some kind of development. That's the you need to identify almost like the the good gameplay loop of the game. Mm. You need to work out what is the actual element that you enjoy, because you're gonna be doing a shitload of it. Yes. There's a good chance you're gonna get paid fuck all too. And if you Try and break into an, in- an industry without having a proper appreciation of the actual work that you're going to enjoy, then you're going to become very disillusioned very quickly and you're going to end up leaving for something else, something better. But you also be- have a high chance of becoming bitter, and the thing that you love, you're not going to love anymore. And I don't think anybody wants that for their industry. For me, I, I-, I love that feeling of writing, like putting together a big long story breaking news, getting it out there first before someone else. Also, like, finding something just cheeky and hilarious and sharing that with readers. Like, I love that process, and that's why I've, I haven't burnt out yet, despite the many, many warnings I keep getting <laughs> given from pretty much everyone. Yeah. But I, there's an energy that and thrill that comes from that, and so that's why I've stayed. But I also know quite clearly what I'm in for. Yeah. So... Just just be aware. You have to be really aware. That's
0: cool. All right, last question. If you could do anything and know you wouldn't fail, what would you do?
1: I wouldn't want to do it if I didn't know that I could fail. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is, like, I'm a very big believer of leaving your mistakes out there. Like, I've, you know, we sort of come back to writing in the end. But mm. it's there's a large tendency in this day and age to try and delete and eliminate missteps that you've made as fast as possible and just pretend that they never happened. Yeah. And we're seeing that writ large over a whole manner of things with how people interact and you know how governments and companies behave. And I think that's, that's not a good path forward. It, it's important everybody makes mistakes and it's important that people... See that you have made a mistake, a mistake, and not pretending that it didn't happen, mm. because that's one of the worst elements. Yeah. So I think like if there, if I could just do something and I knew it wouldn't fail, I would be infinitely less interested in doing it because I am. I'm not. I'm not. I, I've never seen myself as like some sort of shining talent or anything. I've always seen myself as a grifter, someone who just works really, really hard and just keeps going mm. back at it, a lot of trial and error, going over and over again, and uh, that's. That's who I am, and so to me, being able to fail is, is part of the process. Yes. I've said, this has come up in the office um, a few times, especially, you know, I've written articles that went bad or, or people have done made mistakes or, or judgment errors. The most important thing you can do is how you respond after a failure or after a mistake. That's where you see the character of someone. Mm-hmm. And so failing is the most important part of that. It's
0: interesting, yeah. It's probably one of the more thought-provoking responses I get to that question. <laughs> Usually it's like, oh, I'd go into space or, you know, I'd uh, make a movie or something. Yeah, <laughs> I'm, I'm... I mean, you've got to have a dream project that you'd love to do, like some kind of feature or something.
1: Oh, uh, look, yeah, I, From I've that got...
0: perspective.
1: I, I do have a few, a few things I want to work on. Like, I've got some articles that I'd like to just the world to stop so I can just yeah. focus on them and fucking write them uh, I have like a, a podcast that I'd very much like to do again the time to actually do it and sort of get all of that together um, but what I do right now I'm, I'm pretty fortunate too. Yeah. so you know I'm not I'm, I'm not thinking that far ahead
0: fantastic well thanks for your time I really appreciate it it's been, been really good really interesting too
1: no uh, thank you I mm-hmm. uh, appreciate it
0: Thank you for listening, and thanks to the Audio Technica. You can catch Alex on Twitter at Dipizuka, D-I-W-P-I-Z-U-K-A. You can find his content at AU or kotaku.com.au. If you enjoyed the episode, I'd love if you could leave an iTunes review or pick up some sweet putting-in-work merchandise, all of that over at 8bit.net, that's A-T-E-B-I-T, and that is also where you can find the rest of the awesome podcast content from the 8-Bit Collective, everything that you could possibly want in the geek and pop culture sphere. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, I'm at Jono himself, and until next week, keep putting in work.